Let's get into the Word today. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, continuing to go through the Gospel of Matthew. We're starting in chapter 25, uh, so for those of you who want to follow along in the Scripture. And as you, may, as you know, I know it's on the minds of a lot of us, of course, is this, uh, the war that's going on in Ukraine. And one of the things that have come to the, the forefront, uh, if you've been watching the news, which I have to try to stop not watching so much, but is this issue of readiness, being ready. And uh, throughout this, this war that's been going on, uh, readiness isn't just about facing a military threat, which NATO is dealing with, you know, and, and even the German government has kind of changed their whole philosophy uh, in order to be more ready for threats. But it's also the readiness in maintaining supply chains, which we're all kind of dealing with, you know, when you can't find flour and oil. Uh, in the stores, readiness to have energy alternatives, which again is something that uh, Germany and a lot of, uh, like right now, Poland and, and, and uh, uh, Belgium, uh, not Belgium, Bulgaria is dealing with. And other issues are, are these are issues of readiness, which, you know, people knew were coming a long time ago. It's not as though these things are a surprise to anybody. It's just that people either choose to ignore them or it was more profitable, made more money to not really deal with the issues. But whatever they are, we're all finding ourselves in the West struggling with the, the issue of being ready for something to happen that we were not really expecting to happen. And if you type in the word readiness on Google, you'll get a bunch of military images because that's really what this, what, it's where everyone's mind is. But the problem with readiness, to be ready, is that it comes at a cost. To be ready often comes as a high cost. For example, you know, most of us, most of you know, I come from the United States, and the United States spends a tremendous amount of money not only to equip a formidable military, but to also maintain that formidable military, to continually upgrade that formidable military, to train personnel, generations of personnel. It costs a tremendous amount of money to be ready. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew today, starting at chapter 25, it's Jesus begins to, to share some, he shares three parables about how one is to prepare their heart and soul to be ready for his second coming. You remember we talked in chapter 24 a few weeks back that he gives a very straightforward uh, kind of teaching or expectation of what it will look like or what to expect, the signs to expect for his second coming. And then chapter 25, there's three parables in which he describes how we are to be prepared emotionally and spiritually for his second coming. And so we're going to be looking at those parables, one, not all three today, just one each week. And we're starting at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, where he talks about the parable of the ten virgins. And so let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. He says, at that time, speaking that time being as his second coming is, is, is imminent, at that time, the kingdom of heaven, which is how he refers to the church, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, 
Come out and meet him. And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. In this first parable, Jesus warns, basically, this is in a nutshell, that those who follow him must be ready at any time for his return. And in the parable, it's interesting that the, the, the ten virgins, they don't really know where the bridegroom goes. It's not really important in the story, but it is important to note he has gone a long time. And in the early church, it seems like this parable was kind of read over because people were expecting Jesus to come back very soon. But Jesus warns in this parable, the bridegroom was a long time coming. And in that long time coming, they fell asleep while waiting for him. But this isn't a parable about being spiritually asleep. That is a concept, but that's not what this parable is about. This story is about being ready. Because all the women, they, women take their lamps and they're, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to return. But because he is a long time coming, when he finally, when they get the word that, that's imminent, that it's going to be happening soon, only half of them are ready because only half of them were prepared for the long wait. They all had their lamps, but only half had extra oil. And when they get word that he's coming, the, the half that wasn't really prepared, they, t- they ask the ones that have the extra oil, give us some of the oil. And they say, no, we, there, there won't be enough for both of us. So this also is not a parable about being generous. It's a parable about being ready. And when the unprepared women go out to buy oil, the bridegroom returns, and the five who are ready go to the wedding banquet with him. And when the others return, it's too late. And when they cry to to be allowed to come in, they're banging on the door, the bridegroom says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And it's not about a cognitive knowing. It's not as though the bridegroom is saying, I don't know your names, I don't know who you are. And, And in fact, many times in the New Testament, Jesus will warn that those who are not in relationship with God, they'll be told, go away, I don't know you. In fact, some will say, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things. And he says, go away, I don't know you. It's not a cognitive doesn't know. It's a heart doesn't know. He wasn't in relationship with them. They were not focused on him. And so Jesus warns, he ends this particular parable with a pretty straightforward thing. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And when he's talking about keeping watch, he's talking about being ready. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to maintain a state of spiritual readiness, especially in a world that has a lot of darkness in it? How do we maintain spiritual readiness? How do we get it, and how do we maintain it? What does it mean to even be ready? And there's a lot of ideas and concepts over the centuries that have gone into this idea of being ready. But I believe one of the characteristics in being ready is living with expectation. Because if you don't expect that something's going to happen, then you're not going to be ready for it. You're not going to be motivated to be ready for it. And again, 
not to talk about you know, what's going on in our world, uh, you know, ad nauseum. But one of the things that we're really seeing in front of us is this idea of, of a lack of readiness for, this, for the invasion that took place because most of Europe and the world believed something like this would never happen again. There was a doctrine of, of economic intertwining that basically was the idea that we're so intertwined economically throughout Europe and the world that, there, that a war like this is unthinkable. And so there wasn't, there wasn't a readiness. Most of the European nations weren't fulfilling that 2% of, of the NATO you know, spending on military readiness, so it just wasn't there. Because people didn't expect what happened. So because they didn't expect what happened, they did not maintain readiness. And this happens spiritually as well. If you don't expect Christ is ever going to return, then you're not going to be ready. You're not going to care because you don't believe it's ever going to happen. If Christ isn't going to return, what's the point of being ready? If Christ isn't going to come back, what's the point of, of trying to live in such a way that glorifies Him? Part of being ready is living with expectations, the expectation of his return. It's interesting that if you look throughout Christian history, before the Reformation, the, the big Reformation, the 1500s, if you read theology being written back then, there wasn't a lot of talk about the second coming of Christ. Now, of course, around 1000 AD, you know, every time you have these kind of big moments, uh, you know, big changes in time, people would, would think, oh, this is it, the world's going to end. The same thing happened in year 2000. For those of you who were, were around and remember that, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, either excitement or anxiety, kind of dependent on where you were at with that around the year 2000. It's kind of the same with the year 1000. But except for that, before the 1500s and the Reformation takes place, you don't see a lot of writing and theology about preparing for the second coming. Instead, most of the writing is about how uh, the church can somehow justify dominance, uh, spiritual dominance as well as earthly dominance over the world. As you had the rise of the papacy, you had more, more focus on how can we theologically justify the role of the, of the papacy having spiritual domination as well as, as temporal domination. And if you know anything about history, there was a lot of fighting going on between emperors and popes because of this. And this is where a lot of energy went into trying to explain. People really weren't focused on the second coming of Christ. They were focused on how can we make sure our earthly kingdom is strong and is rich and is important. But the Reformation kind of shook things up. And people began to look back into what the Bible says about what it means to be living as a believer with expectation, and it changed, and you began to see a lot of people start thinking about the second coming of Christ, almost to the point then it went to the other extreme, uh, where you had, you had people like, uh, even in this area in Munster, if you go to St. Lambert's Cathedral in Munster, if you look up at the top of it, you'll see three iron cages hanging from the cathedral to this day. And those cages held the bodies of Anabaptists who believed Jesus was coming back to Munster. And so they overtook Munster. They just took over the city and waited for the return. And the Catholics and the Lutherans decided, well, we're going to get together on this because nothing brings two enemies together like a, a mutual enemy. And they attacked the Anabaptists who were kind of nuts. And when I say Anabaptists, you have to remember you didn't have one particular stream. Anabaptist just means rebaptized. And some of them were kind of loopy. And this guy, who, that group that took over Munster, believed Jesus is coming back. And they got killed, and they took their bodies, and they hung them from their iron cages from the cathedral. And they are still there to this day. If you want to go take a look, if you look up there, you'll see them. That's why they're there. They used to have the bodies 
of those that believed, you know, well, the second coming is happening here. It's happening in Munster. So we've seen, after the Reformation, we've seen shifts all over the place. And almost every year you hear about some group, right, that is following some guy says, I know the day and the hour, even though Jesus clearly says no one knows the day or the hour. He says that more than once. He says it in this particular parable, but people just seem to ignore Jesus when it comes to that because they know more than him. They decide the day and the hour. People sell everything. They uproot their families. And then, of course, when it doesn't happen, you have all these folks that are just kind of left with nothing because they followed a false prophet. But the idea of Jesus coming back is one that is, has kind of has this tension that goes back and forth. This, the, and it's interesting to note that almost every generation of Christians since the Reformation have thought that they were likely the last generation. And a lot of us believe we're the last generation. There's something within us, right, that kind of niggles around the back of our head that says we might be it. Well, just for you to know, every generation pretty much since the Reformation has thought they are the last generation. And why is that? Well, I don't think it's just because, you know, people are, are silly about this. Actually, I think this is an act of the Holy Spirit. I think that in order to prevent us from being complacent or being maybe more complacent would be the way to say it, I believe the Holy Spirit places within us a kind of tension that whispers into our soul that says, any day now, any day now. And I believe the Holy Spirit puts that there and whispers this into our soul so that we will not just be complacent. Because if the Holy Spirit whispered into the ears of the generations of Christians 2,000 years from now, it probably wouldn't motivate a lot of people to maintain a state of spiritual readiness. Even if they whispered into your ear, a hundred years from now, we might go, well, that's not my generation, so I'm not going to worry about it. But the Holy Spirit, I believe, whispers into the ears of all, and this is my opinion, but whispers into the ears of every generation any day now in order to create a good sort of tension which prepares our souls for being ready. And I know that you know some of you think that, that I'm kind of like too bookish and I don't really uh, get super excited about, you know, well, are we in the last days? In fact, I've had people super angry with me for not believing that the COVID shot was the sign of, uh, of, the, of the beast and that we're in the last days and, and, I'm, and I'm like misleading the church. But I have to tell you, there is, even though I don't, I look at the signs around us and I'm wrecking the days, I don't, I don't see it as bad enough yet that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but he might. But let me tell you, there is within my soul Something like a dog on a leash that's pulling, that wants to say, Woohoo! Jesus is coming back! And he's coming back today! Come, Lord Jesus, come! I am so there. You might not think so, but I am. But then I have to go, okay, but Jesus says, I don't know the day and the hour, and I'm supposed to keep my eyes focused on him, not on an event that is going to be taking place in a time that I don't know. But the spirit in me is the same as I think in a lot of you. That's like, come, Lord Jesus, come. Even though I know that that would mean that almost everybody that I know in my extended family would go to hell because a lot of my extended family doesn't know Christ. And if Christ came back tomorrow, many people in my extended family would die separated from Christ. So there is this within it. There is within us this expectation, and this tension is there, and it's a, good, it's a good tension. And the result of living with this tension is that it keeps us focused on Christ. It keeps us focused on His return. It keeps us focused on what it means to live. 
A lot of people think tension is a negative thing, but tension isn't necessarily negative. If ever, if ever you've gone camping and you take, this, you take your tent and you're starting to set it up and one of the poles is broken and you're like, ah, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I guess I got to have to live with this broken pole. What does it do when that pole is broken? That tension on the tent that keeps its shape is gone. And when the tension's gone, the shape is gone. When the shape is gone, the, the tent doesn't function the way it's supposed to. And if you're unlucky enough to be caught in the rain while that tent isn't in that tense place, then the rain catches where it's weak, and then you've got a big mess. Tension's not bad. Tension keeps the shape, keeps us focused, keeps us kind of spiritually fit. And it's good to have some tension in our life, especially when it comes to things spiritually. Because there's so much in the world that can distract us. There's so many things in the world to distract us. There's, the, there's the, the riches of the world. There's what the world says is success. There's all these different, you know, exciting things going on in the world. Some of them are exciting in a negative way. Some of them are exciting in kind of in a good way. But there's so many different things that can, that can take our focus off Christ. And it's interesting that in the early church, it seems like the enemy tried to silence the voice of Christians by torturing them, maiming them, killing them. You see a lot in early church history that there's a lot of torture, death, and murder that, that Christians had to endure. Uh, some of the Roman emperors, like Nero, is, is, is infamous for taking Christians, strapping them to poles, lighting them on fire to light his courtyard at night. You know, horrible things like that. But you know what? That didn't silence the voice of Christianity. In fact, throughout history, when Christians are under attack, after you get that soft layer who, who aren't really that interested in faith, it just seemed nice to them, once they kind of melt away, that hardcore that stays in place, they have a tendency to spread the faith under persecution. It's happened throughout the world. I had a friend of mine who was a missionary in Vietnam a couple, uh, several years ago, and he was telling the story that, uh, that when the communists took over Vietnam, they broke up these Christian communities and they made them, they forced them to live in different areas of the country so that the churches would be dissolved. And all that ended up doing was planting a whole bunch of churches all around Vietnam. You know, it didn't stop, the, the, the persecution didn't stop Christianity, it actually spread it because all those folks went to different places. That actually happens in the New Testament when the church is kind of kicked out of Jerusalem. They go and they spread all over the, all over the Middle East there. So what does Satan now decide to do? Well, for the West, one of the things he's done is he's saying, if I can't crush them by torture, death, and maiming them, I'm going to silence their voice by giving them everything they want, and I'm going to make them rich, and I'm going to make them comfortable. And they're going to be so comfortable that they're not really going to long for the kingdom of heaven because they're going to have everything they want right in their hands right now. And they won't feel the tension of come, Lord Jesus, come because, well, you know, I kind of like everything here. And I don't really feel it's necessary for Christ to come back because I kind of have heaven on earth right now. And the Western church, particularly in the U.S. and, and I think in Western Europe, it's complacent. It's fat, it's dumb, and it's happy. And it's quiet. And it gets more interested in social issues that go against the Scripture than really focusing on the Scripture because we're complacent. And we have to be aware that the enemy isn't stupid. 
When one tactic didn't work, violence, he chose another tactic, gluttony. I'll make them gluttons, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I will make the Western church a gluttonous church. And when they hear, be ready, the bridegroom's coming, they're going to say, I'd rather not get off the couch. So then what are some signs of not living with Christian readiness? One of the main signs that you're not living with Christian readiness or even wanting to live with Christian readiness is the persistent, unrepentant sin in our lives. Persistent, unrepentant sin is a sign that you're not ready and you don't want to be ready. Now, I think there's a difference between a persistent, unrepentant sin that is known and a persistent, unrepentant sin that is unknown. It means sin is sin, and I understand that. But for example, I run into people, especially in Europe, a lot, that are like, like young couples, and they'll be living together, having, you know, being sexually active before marriage, and when I share with them, that is not the plan of God. Some of them are quite surprised because no one has ever said that to them before. In fact, they've been in churches that have said, hey, it's all okay. And they really don't know how to react to it. And then we have to go through the scripture and find out, you know, what is God's view of marriage? What is God's view of honoring one another? What is God's view of honoring him? And they're in this persistent, unrepentant sin because they don't really know any better. Now, I know sin is sin, but there's a different heart attitude with that and someone who is in a persistent, unrepentant sin, and they know it. Those are the ones who are in deep danger. I call these Christian atheists. Christian atheists are folks that claim to believe Jesus is Lord, but then they live as if he doesn't exist. They'll say, I believe Jesus is Lord, but their lifestyle is one that seems to say they don't believe that he's really coming. They don't really believe he's very active in their life. They don't believe that in his imminence in their life. And these folks are in every church. And if you're one of them, let me just tell you, you're playing with fire. Literally, like the spiritual fire. These are the ones that the bridegroom says, and this happens more than once in the scripture. Jesus says, they will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, you know, what about us? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. These are folks that claim the title Christian, but not the life. These are like the, the virgins that have the oil, they have the lamp. They have the lamp, but they don't have anything in their life that says that they really are expecting the return of the bridegroom. And I've pointed out before that, you know, we, we want to be a graceful people, and it's by grace that we're saved, but we need to be careful to not abuse the idea of grace. Grace extended by God doesn't mean, hey, just do whatever the heck you want. It doesn't really matter. Because that's, that's kind of the false thing about grace. Sin doesn't matter. It's all taken care of. No, it still matters. Because we are to have the fruits of the Spirit to show that the Spirit is in our life. Speaking in tongues isn't the thing you need to have in your life to prove you're a Christian. Doing good works isn't the thing you have to have in your life to prove that you're a Christian. But 
The scripture does talk about that the fruit of the Spirit, and man, I go to this all the time, and if you've been here for a while, you can probably start to just rattle them off as well. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These, these are the evidence of the Spirit in our lives. And if we are living a life that doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't matter what label we put on ourselves. It doesn't matter what job we're doing within the church. If you don't have the Spirit then you're going to be in this place of being this Christian atheist told by, the, told by God at the end, I don't know you. And you don't want to be there. But on the positive side, let's look at this. How do we grow in readiness? And how do we maintain readiness? Because this is where the cost comes. It's, it, it's a cost to maintain readiness. Some of you know this if you've been a believer for a while. I've been a believer for 35 years at least. And I can tell you there's a difference. You know, when I first became a believer, there was just so much kind of the adrenaline of joy and that, that first blush of relationship. It's almost like being in love romantically, you know. Uh, those of you who are married, how you just didn't really have to try to want to be with the person you're with. It's just all you ever thought about. But then as you grow in the relationship, if you don't mature in that relationship then it falls apart. And it's the same with your spiritual relationship. You're not going to have the same relationship with Christ when you've been, in, been a believer for two or three years than you're going to have it 30 years. You shouldn't. If you're not growing as a person, if you're not a different person 30 years after you become a believer, then there's something wrong with you. And we have a tendency to want to always go back to when everything was all bright and shiny. And Christians spend a lot of time trying to recapture their past when they feel down about the where, where they're at spiritually today. And you're wasting your time. What you need to do is capture who you are right now in Christ. Just like it would be a waste of my time with Cindy to try and recapture who I was, the person I was when I was 19, and I saw this cute girl in my class, and I asked her for a pen to borrow because I didn't have a pen. I was as disorganized then as I am now. I haven't really grown as a person there. And, uh, and of course, you know, she remembered me asking for that pen. Not. She doesn't even remember this. I hold this against her still. But, but, you know, it's a different person. I'm a different person. She's a different person. The person I love now isn't the same person as she was 30 years ago. But because we've worked on the relationship, we've tried to maintain this, not just maintain the relationship, but grow it more deeply. You know, I love her, but in a very different way. Well, not very different, but in a deeper way than I did when I was, like, young and dumb. You know? Does that make sense? It's kind of the same, you know, when God called me to be a pastor, he called, he, the calling I've shared with you before was, do you love my bride? You know, I came out of a seminary class one day and just kind of felt the Spirit saying, do you love my bride? And I had to think about it because I hadn't really thought about being a pastor. I was going to be a missionary. And I said, you know, I think I do love your bride, the church. And then God's call in my life was just simply take care of my bride. That's my calling, take care of my bride. It's about that simple. But the person I was when I heard that call, has gone through a lot of 25 years of ministry. He's a different person now. And if I'm always trying to be that person I was 25 years ago, I would be extremely ineffective and very depressed, to be honest with you, because you can't recapture that person. You have to be who you are in Christ now. And how do we do that? What's one of the tools God gives us to do this, to grow in this place of readiness, to mature in our faith, well, it's the church. So often the church is kind of treated like a, a kind of club of people who think 
somewhat the same, but they bring to it their, their sense of their own entitlement to that church, and it causes a lot of conflict, and that's not what the church is to be. The church is the bride of Christ. And at its best, the church is a place where we can be encouraged in our faith. The church is a place that we can be corrected in our faith. The church is a place where we can also lovingly guide others in their faith. It's a community to practice your giftedness, be it spiritual or, or uh, you know, born with talents, to use them to glorify God. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about, to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify something? It means to reveal the character and nature of it. So when we talk about glorifying God in our lives, we want our lives to be lives which reveal the character and nature of God. That when people see us, they see the nature and character of God. It's the same thing that Jesus said when Philip, the disciple, said, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, you've been with me all this time. Don't you know by now that when you see me, you've seen the Father? And what Jesus is saying there is when you've seen the way I act, my character, my nature is that of the Father. You don't need to be shown the Father like some have the heavens open up and some old man stick his head out and go, boo. That's not what you need, Philip. You need to have your eyes on me, Jesus is saying. Have my, your eyes on me, my character, my nature, what I love, what I judge, what, I, what makes me angry. These are the characters of God. He, Jesus glorified the Father by revealing the character and nature of God. And in that same way, through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are to glorify God by revealing the character and nature of God in our lives. And so in short, Christian readiness can be summed up in this way. Christian readiness is living with the tension of expectation given to us by the Holy Spirit, which prompts us to reject sin and live in a way which glorifies Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about in this parable of the ten virgins. Living with a tension, a good tension, of expectation. We don't know the day or the hour, but we still live with that expectation. Given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we're manufacturing. Which prompts us to reject sin. To says, I'm going to live in a different way because I believe that this return is going to happen. I don't know the day or the hour, but I believe it's going to happen. And live in a way which glorifies Christ, which reveals Christ to the world around us. And let me tell you, if we lived lives which revealed the character and nature of Christ, then this would be the most effective evangelism that we could have. You know, especially in Germany, it's, it's not really... I, I admire the folks and the courage of the folks who go out and just got cold like a cold call. They'll just like talk to someone about Jesus without any kind of setup. But for most of us, the better way to do it, unless you're, like, you're gifted with evangelism, is to live a life which glorifies Christ, that reveals his nature and character to the people you work with, to your family, and let your words be few and your actions show what it is you really believe. There was a, uh, uh, a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, and he had an interesting saying one time. He said, preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. And I always thought that was kind of an insightful thing on his part. Your life should be the gospel. Your life should be the words. If you have to only rely on these things that come out of your mouth to try and convince people of what you believe, then there's something wrong with the way you're living. Your life 
lived with readiness, hopefulness, expectation. This is how people will see and expect for themselves an encounter with the living God. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for the parables that you give us to remind us of what it means to live with an expectation that you will be coming. And Lord, we may not know the day or the hour, but Father, I do pray that you would help us uh, to experience that tension, that holy tension, that it could be any day now. But may we do so with our eyes open, knowing that you warned us in chapter 24 of this gospel that it'll be rough. The closer the day of your return comes, it gets rough. And God, may we have courage. May we decide right now, as part of our readiness, decide right now that we will stand in the midst of the fire and give you glory, not stand there feeling sorry for ourselves, not stand there being resentful, but standing in the place of giving you glory and reflecting your character, just as you did when you faced crowds which hated you, when you faced you know, people that wanted to kill you, and even when you were upon the cross and you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Give us your nature, give us your character, but also give us eyes that are open. And help us to share with the world around us who you are, not just with our words, but how we live, that people would see in us that there is a difference. There is a hope that is there that is beyond explanation. May we be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. But may we do so with gentleness and respect as we prepare ourselves for the coming day of the Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.